Whether you want to travel more or communicate better with international clients, you need to try Babbel. I've used Babbel's courses and you can do the same in order to learn real life conversation skills in a different language, order food, ask for directions, or speak to clients without having to use translation apps. Right now, get 60% off your Babbel subscription. This is only for our listeners at babbel.com slash freelance. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash freelance, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L.com slash freelance. Rules and restrictions apply. I'm Brandon Hull, and it's time for another episode of Freelance to Founder. Exactly, yeah. And also, I think, obviously, the consulting side of stuff, it's, it doesn't scale. At the end of the day, no matter how well you do it, it's still your time. And, you know, I was booking, and I never do hourly or even daily, really. It's, it's on a project basis, basically. But still, it's, you know, either I'm working on the project or I'm not. I can't go away and have a computer do the project for me. That was Louis Nichols, and this is Freelance to Founder, a podcast where I talk to men and women like him. They're service providers, marketing agency owners, online course builders, bloggers, product creators, software developers, even other podcasters. And what makes my guests unique, like Mr. Nichols, is that they typically started these pursuits as freelance gigs, sometimes with no idea how they build them. But they ultimately took on a whole new life and scaled far beyond their expectations, even their own dreams, and therefore much bigger than themselves. But insert a tire screech moment here. Let's flip the script. Let's go from founder to freelance. Louis' story follows the exact opposite path of our typical conversation. Did he scale something beyond himself? Yes. Did it start as something on the side? Yes, that box is checked too. But what makes Louis' story different is this is pretty much how his story begins. It's not as present so much as it is with most of our guests. Today, he is the founder of Sales for Founders, an online course for founders of software companies. And typically, they're those that are past the initial startup phase but still need to grow rapidly. He teaches basic sales and messaging skills for a largely tech founder audience. He also, over the last two years, made a tidy sum of money into the six figures consulting with software companies on growth, often talking to them about the value of one specific tactic, employing social proof in their marketing activities. Louis' story is also different in that he's from Switzerland and has gained a slightly different perspective on how tech companies in Switzerland and Europe succeed versus those in the U.S. Lastly, I'd love to have you stick around for a new segment in the last portion of the show, three in one. Three rapid fire questions that our guests weren't prepared for, but may help them look inside themselves just a little bit more while giving you just a little more insight as well. All right, with that, I bring you my conversation with Louis Nichols of Sales for Founders. Louis Nichols, thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So this is, uh, for our listeners, this will be really interesting. And I think a lot of people will be able to relate because this is not your typical freelance to founder um, story or episode. This is actually going to be a little bit more of a, maybe a founder to freelance type of story, wouldn't you say? Yeah, that sounds about right. It might be a founder to freelance and, and back again. So I've already, I've already set that story up just a little bit in my intro. However, I want to give you a chance to sort of paint the picture for everybody of what your business is today and how 
uh, how you make money, how the variety of, of streams are work together so that you make money today as a freelancer? I have two revenue streams at the moment, really. Uh, one of them is a course, which is called Sales for Founders. And just like it says on the tin, I help early stage founders, mainly technical, to learn how to do sales, how to find their first customers, and how to build a profitable business. And it's basically just a course. There's a live uh, coaching component as well. And that's been going for about three months. And it's difficult to say exactly how much money it makes per month, because obviously uh, I have like cohorts that start every three months or so. But on average, it's it's just under $10,000 MRR. Then the second kind of uh, income or revenue stream that I have is from my consulting work, which I've been kind of picking up almost by accident over the last 18 months to two years, I'd say. What I mainly do there is kind of social proof consulting, but in general, just to help mainly software businesses, uh, mainly on the smaller side. So uh, below 10 million in in ARR, uh, I help them to kind of look at a couple of different uh, marketing levers for their profit and uh, make some quick wins, basically. And it sounds like specifically in the area of social proof of people feeling like their new product is already being well-received in the marketplace, it sounds like, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a fair way to put it, yeah. So what's, what's uh, there's lesson one, I feel like right out of the gates there, is that it's wise to have multiple streams of income because there will be trends, there will be times, there will be things that will work for you and things that need a little bit more time to develop and having numerous ways that you can personally make an income, maybe as you're transitioning from freelancer to founder, or in your case, the opposite. That's an, inc- uh, an important one. And is that on purpose for you? Are you always going to be a guy who has multiple streams of income? I don't know. It's, it's not really on purpose. I think if you look at the Sales to Founders course, that's me being paid to teach. Yep. And I really see the consulting I do almost as me being paid to learn. So I've never really done it on purpose. I don't really have a landing page as such for it. I don't do any cold emails or anything. Um, it's just something that's kind of come out of you know my network at the beginning and then you know warm referrals, word of mouth, that kind of stuff. Right, right. And I get this amazing opportunity to go into all these crazy different kinds of businesses, different business models, um, different countries, different sizes of companies and everything and uh, help them out. And it's, it's like a hobby almost, I guess. I, you know, I see something completely new, I, I learn a load and uh, I, you know, we, we come away and it's, it's really exciting. That's really cool. Did, when, you, when we go back in time and you imagined you know, when you were a, a young Louis Nichols um, growing up, did you, did you imagine that you would be an entrepreneur? Did you picture that you would own your own business? What did you picture for your future? Yeah, I don't know. So um, my, my dad has actually always been a, an entrepreneur. So naturally, that was never really something that I was that interested in. <laughs> so um, I, I don't know where, where, how far back you want me to go. Um, let's say during school, definitely, I always wanted to be a professional swimmer. So I was focused every day, five hours in the pool every day, uh, two and a half in the morning, two and a half in the evening. Um, no time for anything else, really. Mm-hmm. Then I got to, uh, let's say about 18, 19, um, I was pretty good. Uh, two friends who were pretty good as well, but a lot taller. And <laughs> that's kind of when I realized, okay, this, this isn't going to be for me. I've you know wasted a lot of time doing this. And then I kind of went through one of those phases of well, not knowing what I really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And I think something that happens to people 
especially at that age when you, you don't know what you want to do, but you, um, you want to, you know, you want to find it out is, is one of the things you can go and do is just study, uh, study business, which is something I did in Europe. A lot of people do that as a, as an undergrad degree, as a bachelor's degree. Mm-hmm. So I went to that and thought, okay, I'm probably going to end up going into consulting or banking because that's something that everyone else who was doing the course with me really wanted to do. So I thought, well, that's probably what I should be doing as well. And uh, it wasn't until I kind of realized how much I didn't enjoy doing that, that I discovered the whole startup founder entrepreneur world uh, in a slightly different light. And that's kind of when I, when I got interested in that. And you were in Switzerland uh, in your, yeah. uh, in your university years. So is the startup world, can you, can you open the doors for us and let us see into the startup world in Switzerland? Was it that world that you were interested in or the startup world in Europe, or was it just globally? You felt like this is a phenomenon that you needed to be a part of. It felt like almost like a way out of Switzerland. I think I was, I was very happy there. Uh, it's a really comfortable place to be, but also quite a, um, a, a stuffy culture. It's, you know, it's not the most founder friendly place. I mean, I have a lot of things that we, we could get into talking just about the kind of this, this Swiss startup. Well, I am curious about that. Why, why do you suppose that is? Why do you think it's not very welcoming or encouraging to uh, potential startup founders? Right. So it's a very, one thing I will say for Switzerland, which, which I noticed when I, I started my first, uh, my first company there, is that if you can make it, it's, it's a great testing ground for, for kind of how well you can perform as, as a founder. Because you have a, com- a country, a very small country with uh, three, realistically three different languages that people speak. So you need to be uh, kind of multilingual from a, a very early stage. And they all, they operate almost like different countries. Right. So it, it's really, you're kind of, you're set up internationally from, from day one. And then you have this other thing where people are incredibly risk averse. They don't want to try anything new, but they have a lot of money. So if you can convince someone to buy something, then you're going to do really well, but you have to be really good at sales to make them <laughs> take the, like, kind of take the bait in the first place. That's interesting. Do you think so that, is, that yeah. and Switzerland's very unique in that way you feel like, or Europe in general as well? I think it is quite unique. And I mean, it's you definitely unique in the sense that you have um, these different kind of all these different languages in one place with very different, strong uh, right. cultural identities. It has been so far the place that I find if, say you have something that will definitely help someone, I think Switzerland will be the hardest place to sell that into. Um, I've, I've done sales obviously in pretty much everywhere, to be honest, mm-hmm. kind of both coasts in the US, uh, major cities in, in Europe. If you, you know, if you go to someone, if you go to a, to a company in, in, in New York or San Francisco or, or London or Berlin or somewhere, and you say, look, I have something that's going to help you beat your competitors, then they might not believe you. They may not buy, but they're definitely going to take the meeting. They're definitely going to listen to you because if it turns out that it is something they need and they don't buy it and their competitors do, then they're out of business. Right. And that doesn't apply in Switzerland. They're, they're not worried. They're, um, you know, they're, they're too well off almost. Interesting. So they, yeah. They, yeah, they won't try anything new unless their competitors are already using it. Well, so this gives me a little insight into your personality that you were willing to uh, to start something up from scratch despite all of that, Louis, uh, that says something a little bit about your DNA, your resilience, your uh, your belief in yourself, and and maybe even the, the ideas that you had from a, a company or a product that you wanted to be able to found. And so so let's let's zoom ahead out uh, post university. What did you do 
as these ideas are percolating in your head and you're whether whether you're in university still or just post university to put those feelings into motion. Right. So I kind of first got into kind of my first taste of entrepreneurship was working uh, kind of as a, a marketing intern slash general dog's body with a really small startup in Zurich while I was still studying. And then I also set up a, an e-commerce site that actually did reasonably well while I was still in university and then did that kind of classic thing of, of playing around with a couple of different ideas, learning to code, uh, not really having any success at all, not even really finding any customers, <laughs> and then eventually hitting on this idea with a co-founder uh, that I really wanted to build. And we we made all the mistakes you can make for about five or six months with that, and then finally kind of fumbled our way to a, a working business model and took on a, a very small round of angel funding and took it from took it from there and grew it from there. And that company was Jim Hopper, am I right? Exactly. Yeah, that was a um, a SaaS company which basically helped small independent gyms all over Europe to allow their customers to to go to the gym when they travel. Basically, so it gave small gyms this way to compete with the big chains. It, that's it, what they pay us for. it allowed them to sort of form a, an alliance with one another, and you were the the glue that held them all together, right? Yeah, we were the, te- the technical glue, basically. Yeah. So really cool. So that's what that's a that's one of those um, interesting marketplaces where you've got um, both sides of the coin that you have to be able to to address. One is the number of gyms, so that a user feels like there's a significant number of options available. But then you also need to make it viable for the gyms because there's an you know a, a significant number of consumers that are going to sign up for that. So we don't have to go down the the rabbit hole of talking about that at length. But I am kind of curious about that, and I think other people who've had ideas for marketplaces might be interested in knowing about that. How did you at- attack that? How did you find your first customers for that? Because ultimately that did fuel your, some of your uh, experience and intuition about a growing a found, you know, growing a startup company and, and finding your first customers and so forth. So what can you tell us about how you went about building that business in the earliest days? Sure. So I've done a couple of different marketplace businesses and my kind of lesson learned, I think, is if at all possible, build it in a way that means it isn't a marketplace business. So what we did with Jim Hopper, we started off like that in the very early days where we said, we're going to connect all these different gyms with all these different people who want to go to the gym while they're traveling and kind of make a commission in between almost kind of arbitrage, I guess you'd call it. And that is really difficult. You have that chicken and egg problem. And what we did instead, after a couple of months of, of banging our head against the wall, was to say, well, let's really understand one side of the marketplace and what they need and what they want. And obviously, we went where the money is, which is where the gyms are. They're the ones who have more money to pay us. Mm-hmm. So we talked to them, and it turns out that they lose customers. That you know, Their number one problem is churn. And they lose customers, gym goers, all the time because they move or they suddenly have to travel for work or for pleasure or whatever it is. and they you know, that the, the gym membership they had suddenly isn't useful anymore. So they, so they leave, and they get a, a membership somewhere else. Right. So we realized, okay, well, if we can help these gyms to retain more of their customers by ca- connecting them with other gyms who also want to do the same thing, then we can charge the gyms for that because we're helping them make more money. So right. that's what we did. <laughs> that's pretty much how I would start any, any marketplace if you can, is to to focus on one side and have them kind of, 
acquire the other side of the marketplace for you. Mm. And it didn't it didn't hurt that you're taking advantage of the fact that Europeans travel cross country so regularly. We we're so landlocked in the US and we're so isolated from the rest of the world in a lot of ways that it's uh that it's a little bit more of an effort to to travel internationally, not counting Canada and Mexico obviously, and it's just a routine thing for Europeans. I'm, I'm saying that to our American counterparts who don't travel as much. It, this, this is not a rare thing that somebody might need to travel from one country to the next and, and need to find a gym locally. Yeah. I mean, well, you see this even in, I mean, if you go to LA, for example, I mean, LA is yep. apparently one city, but I mean, <laughs> <laughs> or even New York. I mean, if you, if you live, you know, if you need to get across Manhattan, that's, you may as well be in a different city. Yep. It's, it's going to take you a while. Having a gym at one end is not going to help you if you, if you live at the other end. Right. Um, yeah. so, so it was a chance to bind together or you know, form alliances between all of these independents who will not have the time, know-how, or anything to form partnerships with one another is really what it was. Exactly. Yeah, that's basically... We were that, that kind of that, that the technical glue, but also the trust, right? We were making sure that people weren't using it too much or whatever. It's, you have all these kind of, all these reasons that it hadn't happened before. And we just kind of took those objections out of the way through a, a long painstaking process of just doing sales and listening to the, the gyms and their problems. And uh, I, I guess being kind of young and relentlessly naive and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's a, it's a difficult business though, in that you as a, founding team need to actually be able to be multilingual to be able to speak with these uh, gym owners to get them to join um, and be a part of the alliance that I'm calling the network, the marketplace and so forth. Um, How did you guys divide and conquer who would be responsible for app development versus web development versus business growth, that sort of thing? Sure. So, I mean, you're absolutely right, especially uh, in the early days when we were in in Switzerland, we started off just with the German speaking part. um, And I do speak pretty decent German. I mean, it's pretty much fluent to all extents and purposes. Right. Um, but like I said, that's where this local aspect comes in of people in Switzerland really like to buy from other Swiss people. So my co-founder, partly because he wasn't technical and partly because he was a, a native Swiss speaker, he took on kind of the, the early sales inside of Switzerland. And that left me worrying about all the rest, basically. Fun challenge for you. So, and there's yeah. no doubt uh, numerous ups and downs that come during the initial phase of running a, any kind of app-based marketplace system like this. It, I should mention that today, Jim Hopper still is up and running. Um, it's still geared more towards gym owners as far as uh, the business model from a revenue standpoint. And then there's a great opportunity for people to find a gym you know, based on their search parameters and that sort of thing for consumers. But you are no longer there. So uh, the business didn't have an exit with you there um, we don't, again, have to go into detail, but at some point in time, you chose to leave the ups and downs of a, of a startup world, and, and that's the way it goes. What grabbed your attention as you ultimately transitioned out of Jim Hopper? Sure. So I think we have to go back a tiny way just to explain a bit of the circumstances of me leaving. You bet. Um, which was we'd raised a couple of, of angel rounds by that point. We were international. It was a couple of years in. We have a, a team, about 25 people at that point. Everything was poised. We'd been hiring, ready to do a pretty decent Series A. And we had VCs interested and at the last minute it just fell through. We, we basically couldn't convince them. And that left us in a, a really bad place, obviously, uh, having to make cutbacks. We were at that kind of place where we didn't really know what the next steps were going to be. We weren't really agreeing on that as a, as a co-founding team, as a board. And I felt as well, you know, I really want to go and find out, you know, what we would have to do 
to be able to achieve this, you know, next time to be able to convince investors, VCs to, to back us, you know, what does it take? I basically, it was my time to kind of step back and say, look, I'm the most replaceable person here. You guys will have a, a great chance without me. And also I would love to go away and, you know, join or, you know, see kind of under the, under the hood of a, a slightly bigger company, a slightly bigger startup that had just managed to, you know, to, to achieve basically the, the point at which we failed right. and make it so that next time I would be able to do that. Have you ever noticed that many of the problems people call in with on this show can be solved by hiring someone? Sometimes you need a full-fledged team, other times maybe just a simple assistant or an expert in something you're not great at. Whatever your reason for hiring, we recommend you take a look at LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. As you may know already, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. And LinkedIn Jobs makes the process of finding the perfect teammate easy and intuitive. Hiring is always easy when you have access to so many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours when using LinkedIn Jobs. I've used it myself, and it was so simple. In fact, I've made multiple hires using LinkedIn Jobs. And did I mention, by the way, it's free to business owners like me and you. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash freelance. That's linkedin.com slash freelance to post your job for free or click the link in our show description. Terms and conditions apply. You know, working from home is mostly great, but there are some days when I realize I haven't left my house or even my chair like all day. Have you been there? Getting outside to exercise or making a trip to the gym are just harder now that my office is just a flight of stairs away. If you're stuck in the same rut as me, then you should try Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W. With the Hydro rower and 20 minutes a day, getting a full body workout is so much easier. Hydro can work up to 86% of your muscles in just 20 minutes for an insane effective home workout. That's because Hydro pairs the effectiveness of rowing with the power of technology to connect you with over 5,000 video trainings, classes, and workouts. And get ready to get out from behind your home desk because after a few months of daily rowing with Hydro, your partner's going to want to take you out for a night on the town to show you off. This spring, join the growing rowing community at Hydro. Head over to hydro.com and use code FREELANCE to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com and promo code FREELANCE to save $400. Hydro.com, promo code FREELANCE, or just click the link in our show description. Well, even um, though you volunteered yourself, though, it must have been difficult because, again, you are one of the founders. It's, it's, this is your baby. This is your, your business idea that you brought from, from an idea to a, a company that's got employees, that's got revenue, that's got an opportunity to raise funding. That must have been difficult still. Well, yeah, it, I mean, it, it always is. Um, I think, you know, under the, the amount of pressure you're under, I personally perform really well under almost every kind of pressure. The one thing I've discovered that I really don't like, which maybe we'll get into a bit later, is being responsible for employees. And I was the one basically because I was running most of the stuff outside of the Swiss sales team. So I had, you know, 16, 17 people that really were my responsibility that I'd hired, uh, some of them that had you know, moved cities and even countries for me. And we were worrying about whether we would, you know, be able to carry on uh, paying their wages and stuff. And that's something that I just did not like dealing with at all. That, right. that, that, that's the kind of pressure I didn't want. Well, that's, so, it's good to yeah. know yourself. 
in that way, right? Know not just what your talents are, but to also know where you are, you feel like the best of you can be brought, right? And that wasn't it for you. Oh, that definitely wasn't it for me. No, that definitely was not. No, I did not enjoy that responsibility one bit. Okay. So you negotiate your exit from Jim Hopper, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't a hard negotiation. I think we, we'd known for a, for a couple of weeks, at least, that, that someone was going to be going. It was just a question of who and how and give us a, a chance. I think when you have a founder leave the team as well, it, it really, it almost, it gives everyone like this, this breath of kind of fresh air. There's this wind in the sails of, look, something has changed. This is a reason to start backing us and to, to you know, to give us a, a bridging round from our, our angels that we had at the time. It's funny you mentioned that. I uh, I had a guest on not long ago named Chris Cobb who didn't, it wasn't even a, a deeply technical business, but talked about that very thing. He was feeling frustrated, feeling the grind, feeling a little hemmed in with his own business that he had founded with a co-founder. And he was ready to, I'd almost go so far as to say he was burned out and he was ready to leave. But when it came down to talking with he and his found his co-founder about him leaving, it ended up turning into a situation where the co-founder left and the founder, the person that I had on the show, uh, Chris, um, it unlocked a, a new energy level in him that he was ready to double down and, and okay, all right, well, let's do this now. I've, I was burned out before and felt like I needed to leave, but the other founder left and then he was re-energized by that. Yeah, that makes complete sense. I think that's, that's something that definitely happens a lot. All right. So where did you move to from there? What, what, what was the next lesson to be learned in, the, in, your, in your timeline? Sure. So I had basically a couple of months where on the one hand, I started doing kind of my, what turned into my consulting business where, you know, I'd been as part of Jim Hopper, I, you know, I built the growth team and uh, a lot of sales stuff, also some of the marketing stuff and knew a lot of founders, obviously by, by just, you know, by being a founder basically. Um, and they needed a lot of help with things that I'd been solving over the past couple of years. So I had people coming to me and it, I kind of, you know, fell into that almost by accident. Um, also needed some money because for the last couple of months of of Jim Hopper, I hadn't been taking a salary because we, you know, we we just messed up the <laughs> the funding round basically. Um, so I needed some money. That kind of opportunity presented itself, and at the same time, I kind of had, had latched onto a problem that I'd experienced while at Jim Hopper, which was um, it being very difficult to book a cheap photographer pretty quickly. Um, and set up a marketplace for that for other companies in the area, which which did pretty well. But as, as I said, kind of coming out of Jim Hopper, I really knew that I wanted to experience what it was like inside a a, a more successful VC backed company to yep. to realize what I was missing. And I actually had someone out of the blue reach out to me about three or four months later, and offer me the chance to see all that from the inside and uh, build up a, a partnerships and, and platforms team. And uh, at a company, a SaaS company called Evrios, and I kind of jumped at that. And uh, I think we went for a coffee on a Monday morning, and I was kind of working there on the Wednesday, so it was a, a pretty quick thing. So, so what's funny to me about that this, this story though is that the first thing you did after leaving Jim Hopper was jump right back into another uh, marketplace <laughs> opportunity to to try. And we had a prior conversation. Uh, to this one. And in that, I felt like I learned that that marketplace even jumped out of the gates uh, successful, producing five digits in revenue per month pretty quickly. But you felt like the opportunity with Avrios was just too good of, a, of an opportunity to pass up from a, the structure, the situation, the opportunity, the fact that they'd already have funding. It could have been uh, additional reasons beyond that. And you shut down that photography marketplace. Is that right? 
That's true. Yes. Yeah. So um, that was probably the time I, people say, you know, you, 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 you understand product market fit when you, when you experience it. And I think that was the first time that I really experienced that just crazy pull from the market. You know, just the demand was there. I had way more bookings than I could handle in a really short amount of time. And it, it was going really well. But there were two things, basically. Number one, like we already talked about, uh, I really wanted to... I felt like, you know, if I, if I build up this marketplace, I'm just going to get to the same point again where I need to raise a couple of million and I don't know how to do it. <laughs> and I'll fail again, just like I did with the gym upper. So that was kind of one thing in the back of my mind, thinking all oh, of this is useless and pointless because I'm just going to fail at the same point in three years anyway. And then the second thing was just, you know, I'd never had a real serious kind of nine to five job up until that point. I guess the grass is always greener on the other side. And I thought, you know, it would be, would be nice to have a steady paycheck and not to have to be responsible for anybody. And just to know, yeah, everything kind of someone's <laughs> looking out for me and uh, I, I, I'm not the one who has to make the tough decisions. So, so, so your story on my mind as well. Yeah. You went from founder of a company right out of university to employee of a company. Well, you actually went to uh, dabbling in another marketplace as well there, but uh, sure. to employee of a company, but I'm sure there were some feelings that, oh boy, I am not cut from this cloth of being an employee in a large company. Even though there were great lessons that you knew you wanted to learn in that type of environment, clearly it was not something that you wanted to do long-term or you discovered that. Is that the case? Yeah, I, I discovered that in about two weeks. <laughs> That's so very short. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I, I stuck around for more like nine because, you know, uh, it was a, it was a, an important role and I... Um, I really wanted to give it my best and see what I could do. And obviously there were people there who kind of knew me and there's, you know, reputation at stake and everything like that. It's a small, small community, I guess, in the startup world, especially in Europe. And yeah, I mean, I, I just, I just got in there and I saw, okay, this is a lot of this is just, you know, um, self-belief and an amazingly dedicated founding team, really, really clever people, but there wasn't anything special that we were missing at Jim Bopper other than that self-belief almost just the, the way we presented ourselves. Yeah, I just, I, I, I joined about 40 employees. When I left, there were about 75. And I just, I, I love the people, ambivalent about the business and the product, but I just hated the, um, just the, the whole VC back thing, really. I just right. didn't like the, the way it worked. So yeah. you mentioned that you felt like you were bad at the funding process from your experience from Jim Hopper, as opposed to mm -hmm. you saying, that you felt like that one just didn't go well and you were too, it was too early for you to want to go down that path again. You didn't suggest that, uh, you just suggested you're bad at it. You didn't suggest that you'd never want to do it again or anything like that. Was, is the idea of going after funding just something that's you just, you just don't have interest in any longer based on how your experience went with Jim Hopper? So I definitely wouldn't say I'm never going to take funding again. Right. Um, there are a couple of people, uh, especially just kind of, we didn't have back in whatever that was, 2014. Mm -hmm. So now you have a couple of these more uh, indie-friendly um, funding options in the early days. So you have Indie VC, you have something called Earnest Capital, and um, there's one by Rob Walling of, of Drip, uh, which I've forgotten the name of, but which is is a tiny seed. Tiny exactly. seed, yep. Um, yeah. So you have those three who, which are much more founder friendly. They don't put that pressure on to, to raise a big, uh, big round and, right. you know, uh, hire a lot of people because that's what I don't want to do. I don't want to build a company where I have to employ a lot of people. Right. So you want something I, I don't enjoy that. lean, lean. And, and even if it does have funding, it's really the idea that it needs to scale because of the expectations of the funding you've taken on and the team behind that funding, it sounds like. 
yeah, that sets you on a path. Basically, you're making a promise to people that you, uh, you know, you have to honor, and they will do everything to to see you honor that. Right, and that's absolutely fine. I mean, that's they're not they don't hide this. It's not like they're pretending uh, something else, right? <laughs> so that that's absolutely fine. But it's it's not what I want to do. And I, I know I wish I was I was talking to Tyler of, of Ernest Capital a couple of weeks ago, and I was saying, I, you know, I really really wish that this existed because it would be great to have that money, but also the mentorship, um, the support, all that kind of stuff. The community as, yeah. as an early stage founder. Yep. So I definitely wouldn't say I don't raise capital or I won't raise capital, but I think I, I wouldn't go the, the VC back route again just because I know who I am. And, I wouldn't like it. And maybe the cautionary tale there for other founders is if you have people whispering in your ear to take funding on, that's not inherently bad. That's a neutral statement or a neutral feeling, but you do need to be mindful of all that comes with it. You take funding and you are taking a, an advisor. You're taking on an advisory board. You're taking on that. And, the, and you may want that. You may even want to have hyper growth uh, heaped upon you from an expectation standpoint, but you just got to be prepared that that may come with it unless you take a look at one of these alternative approaches to, to funding, um, whether it's debt funding or it's, it's an earnest capital type of route or some tiny C type of route or something along those lines. It's just something you need to be mindful of as a founder if you feel like you need additional funds, external funds to fuel the next stage, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I probably wouldn't take funding for the money. I would take it for the connections, the mentorship, the, sure. um, all that kind of stuff. Right. I, I wouldn't, it wouldn't really be about the money that much. I, I think for, for me, for the, you know, for the kind of amount that I would, I would, I would feel comfortable taking. Right. All right. So you poured your time, energy and talents into Avrios. What next? Uh, what, when it came time to, to walk away from Avrios, which was, um, I think we established a year and a half ago, January, 2018. So what what was the next thing you wanted to walk to next? I think you had some ideas that had to have been percolating, percolating on the side or ideas that you wanted to form into uh, a consulting engagement um, package of some kind. But you tell me, what did you do next after you left Abrios? I really just spent a long time kind of thinking about what I wanted to do. You know, I, that I really was lucky then that I kind of, I was really disillusioned for a long time and I was thinking, okay, well, how can I, you know, what am I going to do next? And I knew I, I always really enjoyed the consulting stuff. And there were people there who knew me, who knew my work, who were willing to, you know, to hire me and really needed the kind of stuff that I could do. Right. Um, so I kind of fell straight back into that again, almost without thinking, without, there, there really was no planning there. You know, there was no crafting of a, um, a mission statement or a proposal or any kind of, it was just complete organic. It just happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, I was playing around with different product ideas and just thinking, okay, well, what am I going to do? And that was kind of when I found, uh, or I think that was pretty much when Indie Hackers, uh, which Cortland Allen started this community of, of bootstrapped or bootstrap focused founders yep. and, and side project people uh, kind of started picking up. And I kind of found that and really enjoyed it and found a lot of people making the same mistakes that I'd made over the last couple of years and kind of dived headfirst in there. And I, I really didn't do anything um, outside of my consulting work for, uh, you know, I was trying small things here and there, testing small projects and whatever. But uh, outside of the consulting stuff, I didn't really do anything apart from writing a weekly newsletter for over a year, for about 15 months or so. Um, yes. Yeah, so but uh, yeah. well, you say nothing. But what that what that was? You there were there were two things that you were consciously and maybe subconsciously doing, if that makes sense to do them both at the same time. But one sure. is you are engaging in a community 
that is made up of people in the exact situation that you had been in with Jim Hopper. You're engaging yes. with a community of people who who aren't looking for funder or funding, who aren't, well, maybe they are, but they're not looking to that community for funding necessarily. They're looking for validation. They're looking for feedback. They're looking for input on their startup idea. They're looking for partners. They're looking for collaborators, all of that sort of thing. IndieHackers.com. It's Cortland Allen. He was on uh, uh, season three, episode six with us um, a couple of years back and is a tremendous guy. That, that actually, Indie Hackers is actually owned by Stripe now. So he's sort of a, internal entrepreneur there running indie hackers completely independently and um, with total autonomy there. It's a really cool uh, relationship he has with Stripe in that way. But it's a great community in that way. So you were participating in a committee community, but you were also building a community, it sounds like, with your email list that you were providing, you know, nuggets of wisdom and guidance from from your experience at Jim Hopper and even probably at Aprios as well. Did you see it that way? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we obviously we were kind of focusing on the the stuff that went reasonably well, but outside of Jim Hopper and you know Avrios and the consulting stuff I've been doing, I you know I played around with twenty thirty different business ideas, uh, made some money on, on some of them, made a lot of mistakes on others. So uh, a lot of the mis- pretty much every mistake that people were making was something that I'd already done and done worse. So I kind of knew, uh, you know, it was it was really hard for me not to kind of jump in and say, look please don't do this stupid thing that I did in December, 2013. Uh, you know, try something else, try maybe this, this worked for me a couple of months later or whatever it was. So I, I really, really enjoyed helping people. Never had any time to do that while I was at these kind of, you know, investor back companies working right. crazy hours. Um, and I really enjoyed doing that alongside the, the, um, the, the consulting work I was doing was kind of the bulk of, of, of my kind of day job almost. Did you find so, yeah. that working with people in this way generated more interest for you than building your own thing and still being a part of one of these communities? Uh, I don't know. I mean, so I really enjoy the consulting side of stuff. I really enjoy, it feels almost like a hobby. It never feels really like work. Mm-hmm. Maybe I just don't take any of the gigs that are offered that, that would feel like work. You're very choosy. Yeah. I'm not that picky actually. I think just, uh, you know, it's, it's in the early stage, everything's pretty fun, right? It's sure. Like I, it's really interesting just to go ahead and see all those different companies and all the different challenges they're facing and, and new people and it's exciting. And, you know, when you go into consulting, you're always doing something that drives kind of the business forward and you'll be listened to, you'll be respected and you'll work on something that's going to have an impact. And you always have, or I always have a goal. I mean, you know, I go in with with a goal in mind and it's pretty clear and it's, it's perfect. It's really fun. It's not vague. It's not kind of busy work. It's, it's actually actionable stuff as, as, as soon as possible. So I really, really enjoy doing that. Um, I wouldn't say that I necessarily enjoy it more than running my own thing. Um, but it's, it's completely different. It's, uh, I don't know. Um, it's like saying, you know, do you, uh, would you rather read kind of five really good short stories or a really long book? It's, you know, yep. <laughs> both really exciting. You can't really compare them. I don't think. Uh, right. Just totally different experiences that might attract totally yeah. different types of people or different people at different places in their lives or something like that. It's hard. It's a kind of an, Apples to oranges, as we would say, right? Exactly, yeah. And also, I think, obviously, the consulting side of stuff, it simply doesn't scale. At the end of the day, no matter how well you do it, it's still your time. And, you know, I was booking, and I never do hourly or even daily, really. It's, it's on a project basis, basically. But still, it's, you know, either I'm working on the project or I'm not. I can't go away and have a computer do the project for me. So 
you know, I can't, it just doesn't work quite as well as a, as a product in that sense that you can then sell. It's very difficult to sell it. Right. I can't really sell my consulting as a, as a business. All right. So we're, we're, we're talking a lot about your timeline and the type of lessons and the type of businesses that you've built. And I want to, I just have a couple more questions in that area. And then I want to talk a little bit more about um, lessons, like actual lessons learned that somebody might be able to apply in their lives. I don't want to make it a, an entirely uh, chronological conversation about your timeline, but so the last year and a half, the consulting work that you've done, the type of work that you've done for uh, startup founders, can you give us a taste of what type of work, what type of consulting work that you've provided them so that we can get a feel for how you make your money in helping these early stage startup companies? Sure. They're early stage, but they're not that early, right? So right, they're, sure. They're, you know, they're making... Uh, normally at, at least 10,000 MRR, but, but realistically more like 50 plus. Okay. Um, so normally small teams, but at the same time, you know, that they're, they're not going to be disappearing tomorrow, right? It's not just one guy in his, his in his office at home or something like that. <laughs> right. Um, what I, uh, at, at the beginning I was almost more of a freelancer, you know, I, I need money as well coming out of Jim Hopper and being broke. Um, and I was basically doing any kind of, even some technical stuff, to be honest, just, just anything really that I was kind of good at and I knew people needed. And obviously I, I, I made all the same mistakes everyone else will make as a, as a freelancer for the first time, uh, started becoming a consultant and realized that I had this, that I'd done once or twice before for different clients, um, that I had this really unique approach to uh, using social proof that no one else was really doing. So I had this framework for that. I knew I wanted to turn that into a course or a book at some point, which I still will do. Most of it's written. It's, I just don't have time to publish it yet. Um, and so I started positioning myself more almost as the social proof guy, the guy you go to, to increase your conversion rates and your profit with social proof. So Basically, let me I end up just, yeah, just doing that. Let um, me, pa- let me yeah. pause you there because I want to make sure that, uh, and I don't want to treat my audience uh, poorly here. Um, I do want a definition of social proof um, uh, kind of on the record here. When, when my first encounter with social proof was from the, uh, the author, Robert Cialdini, I think it was six, six uh, principles of influence, I think was the book that came out. This is quite some time back. And it was shelved for a while and wasn't mentioned quite as much, but it was the first place that I encountered that. And I know since then, it's seen a little bit of a, uh, not a little, a little bit, a lot of a bit of, of a resurgence by a no, numerous source, sources talking about the importance of factoring in social proof into your marketing to boost conversions. So you, you've got your product and, and what it does. You've got your message as far as what your product delivers, what it offers the world and how it solves their problem and so forth. But separately, when somebody thinks that they have aligned with what that product uh, is and, and how it solves their problem, social proof sort of pushes them over the edge and makes them feel like, okay, so this is the tool that many people have, al- have also relied on. This is the course. This is the book. This is the whatever it is. Um, this, is the, this is the blog post that other people have relied on in order to solve that pain point. Um, and it, so it's using the wisdom of others from a social standpoint to, to help somebody convert to become a customer because they feel comfortable that other people have made this choice before them. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a brilliant definition of it. I think I, I go into slightly more detail around the, um, so I have a, a couple of different ways to use social proof. So it's around, for example, there is this establishing of, uh, of trust, mm-hmm. this establishing of authority, um, of expertise, you know, there, there are different reasons, basically. It's, it's all about different ways to, to handle objections, right? right. So it, yep. um, 
depending on, on, so that's part of why you can't just kind of stick a testimonial in there and, and be done with it because right. you have to kind of, you know, work out, okay, well, why isn't someone buying? Is it because they don't trust me? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it, you know, what, and what is the source of that social proof? Obviously, because if you're a, um, let's say I'm someone from Google deciding whether I want to buy your software, uh, you know, seeing a testimonial from a small business isn't going to make me feel comfortable at all. It's going to actually probably be a negative signal. It's going to say, well, small companies use this business, so it's probably not right for you at Google. Right. So it's all that kind of stuff that you have to kind of uh, get in there. And I have a couple of steps that I, I kind of take, uh, take clients through and we, we work through that and it, it works reasonably well. Obviously you'll never see ridiculous increases, but you know, you can get a couple of percent out of it and it's, it's worth it for a company that size. To Makes do. a difference. Yep. So th- yeah. this this world has been a, uh, an important part of your consulting world over the last year and a half. But you also led our interview by talking about a course that you've been working on as well to sort of um, help get some of those philosophies and principles out, and not just a course on social proof necessarily. Um, maybe you can clarify that for us as well. Give us a little bit of flavor for uh, how your past experiences and working with other founders has led to the creation of a new course. Right. So at some point, I will do a course on social proof. Uh, I have the domain <laughs> board. <laughs> it's coming. Of the book written. Yeah, it is definitely coming. Uh, I want to get the sales to founders course done properly first. Uh, that's teaching me a whole lot of stuff about how to run a course and how to do that really well. Um, because obviously founders, they don't have a ridiculous amount of money. Uh, whereas the social proof stuff that I do, that's aimed at, you know, marketing teams where it's, it's worth getting a couple of percent kind of, uh, on, on the conversion side. Right. So that's going to be more expensive and that needs to be absolutely perfect. All right. So um, the sales for founders course is the one that will come first. Let's talk about that one then. Yeah. So I've been doing that for about three months now. And in September, I'm going to launch the first version that you can kind of, uh, just turn up on the website by, and you'll be in, um, it has four components. So there's, uh, there's some videos and some lessons, some, some, some tools, uh, some written exercises, some templates some examples that you can use to basically learn everything you need as a founder about how to do sales. And it's not going to teach you how to be uh, an SDR or an account executive or to work in a sales team. If you want to learn how to be a salesperson, this isn't the course for you. But it is the course that teaches you exactly enough, that you need, uh, everything you need to know about sales, basically, to get to your first, let's say, 10, 20, 30 customers and to learn enough about your customers to be able to build a product they want to pay for and to learn how to do marketing for them, basically, to get you enough of the information you need to be able to do good marketing. Right. So, so your, yeah. your goal with the Sales for Founders course will be to help founders organize their messaging in a way that they can articulate the value of their product in a little bit more persuasive way to cause sales to happen, separate from all of the training that a, a, an actual trained professional career salesperson might need to get, whether they're generating leads for a salesperson or they're the one that are closing the deals. This is how you can articulate your product's value proposition in a very persuasive manner for founders, right? If you're working in professional sales, and I've, I've led a professional sales team before, and basically, you know, you don't write your own pitches. You don't have to discover anything apart from the particulars about that deal in that case. You know, you already know what the product is. You already know what they're going to need it for, basically. You just, you're just working out, kind of ticking the boxes of what that company does. And if they say, okay, we do X, then you know, okay, then I need to sell them on Y, for example. Mm-hmm, right. And that's how it works. Uh, as a founder, you, especially an early stage founder, you don't know any of this stuff yet. You don't know any of the language that you're going to need to use to sell to a customer. You don't know what they want to buy. You don't know what pains they have. Uh, you don't really even you know, necessarily, even if people are buying the product, you don't know why they're buying. Uh, so 
that's kind of, you have all this kind of unknown stuff and it's called sales because I mean, it's what you're doing. You're going out and you're talking to people right. and you're selling them stuff. But really it's more along the lines of discovery uh, along the lines of, uh, I kind of have it at the really basic level, kind of this three stage process of learning about your customers and the really simple uh, levers that they can pull in their business or their life and their goals, what they are, mm-hmm. then finding a way to create a win-win situation where when they make money or when they see value, you get paid as well. Mm -hmm. And then becoming a team with them to put them on this path of getting from where they are now to seeing that value and kind of nudging them along that path to buying your product and being successful. Right. And a lot of people, they come into sales, especially technical founders. They really hate the idea. They think that it's people, you know, pushing things on top of them. It's, pushing information at people where really sales is, is listening and pulling information from people and letting them do the selling for you. And do you find that founders often struggle with balancing how their time should be spent, whether it's building an incredible product that sells itself or them personally learning the art of sales generating, let's call it generating revenue <laughs> since it's not traditional hard closing skills, that sort of thing. Do you, but do you find that they're, they struggle with that balancing how they should spend their time in that way? Yes. I mean, it's, it's difficult to generalize over everybody. Um, I think in general, most people who start a product, especially a software product are because it's a software product, they're technical. Um, and technical people really love solving problems. Uh, and problems are normally something that you can define. So it's a technical problem. It's working on the product. It's writing something. It, it's not helping people and providing value to them necessarily. It's solving a problem. Mm-hmm. And so what I try to help people do is to stop thinking about solving a problem and getting bogged down in, in that and to think more about just, okay, how can I help this person? What's the thing that I could do today to help as, you know, as many of the, the kind of audience that I'd like to help as possible? Right. And I do think that people definitely... Uh, they have this, nobody wants to do sales. Nobody really enjoys doing sales before they've made a couple of sales. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's very, you know, it's, it's hard talking to people. It's emotionally draining. Uh, There's this fear that you're going to be rejected. Uh, I understand why people don't like doing it. I'm definitely not a natural salesperson at all, but it's something that we all need to do. And I don't think you can build a really good product until you've done some of the sales, until you've talked to these people and understood exactly why they're buying or why they're not buying. Right. And from, a, yeah. and from, from the standpoint of you offering this, the founding world, we'll call it, and I assume that you're targeting, when you say founders, you're talking software uh, startup companies because that's your sweet spot. That's your, your past experience. Um, did, did your consultation conversations over the last year and a half lead you to feeling like, wow, this is a bigger problem than I realized. And you, you, you sort of discovered that not only did you maybe have to learn lessons the hard way, in a good way and in a bad way, but did you realize just even in the last year and a half of consultation that this, this demands its own, literally its own course uh, that you can teach people at their leisure how to do well? Yes and no. So um, that's a really good question. So in the consulting stuff I'd been doing, People who could afford to hire me, basically, they'd already, they were making sales. They'd figured this out somehow. Sure. So it wasn't really a problem for them. But I was on Indie Hackers a lot because I enjoyed helping people and I had a lot of free time all of a sudden. And I started my newsletter, which went out to founders, kind of helping them with one of these problems each week. And it got to the point that I would have, I'd wake up in the morning and I'd have five or six emails 
to me from different bootstrap founders uh, all along the same lines of help. How do I find my first customer's help? I've built this thing and no one's buying help. I've emailed 20 people or I've emailed three people and none of them replied and <laughs> sent me a check. What do I do now? My project's right. doomed. Um, all that kind of stuff, right? <laughs> so um, I, I, it wasn't, I couldn't keep that up. Uh, I couldn't keep replying to these emails all the time. It was just beginning to take up too much time and I wasn't enjoying it anymore because it was just the same thing again and again and again. So I thought, okay, I know I want to do a course at some point anyway um, for the social proof stuff. I need to learn how to do it. Why not do it with this stuff that I just know, like I know the content of the like, like the back of my hand. I just, I just know it so well. Um, I love helping these people. Okay. There may not be a ridiculous amount of money in it because I always say, you know, founders are the worst people to sell to because they have a lot of time and not very much cash. Uh, <laughs> yes. so, yeah. So I thought, well, why not just, you know, let's just turn this into a course. Um, and at the worst case, you know, I've helped some people and I've, I've, I've learned how to do a course and that'll help me with the social proof stuff, which was coming from my consulting. All right. So the evolution that we should see from Louis Nichols over the course of the next uh, several months uh, and maybe the next year or so are the 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 creation and launch of a Sales for Founders course um, that sort of serves as a next step after your consultation, as well as maybe a course on uh, incorporating social proof more in your product development. Safe to say? Yeah, I can give you the roadmap. So September, the uh, the Sales of Founders course, the new version, the evergreen version goes live. Uh, it's going to be getting better and better and updated kind of um, throughout the end of 2019. Then beginning of 2020, I'm going to spend a month doing all the stupid stuff I should have done the last two years. So putting up <laughs> my own personal website, updating it, making it all fit together somehow. Uh, and then the social proof stuff that I've basically already written anyway, I'm going to go back, update it with everything I've learned over the last year. And then that's finally going to be going to be out there sometime in, in 2020. Well, this is fascinating. I know we haven't had a time to, to dive into an, uh, numerous other side pursuits that you've been involved in and learned lessons from as well um, that you've mentioned to me off the air. Um, but I, I, I think with the lesson here for many people is that sometimes the the story or the path of going from a freelance to a freelancer to a founder may not be the one that's right for you. Um, it may be just the opposite. It may it may be that you find your greatest joy, happiness, and maybe even success comes from separating from that world and offering still something, learning from it, and offering something to an industry or a target market that uh, takes lessons learned from your time in that world. But sometimes the 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 greatest success personally can come from flipping the script a little bit, wouldn't you say? Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's a really, really nice way of putting it. I, I wish I'd thought of that first and I wish I'd, I'd known that was what was happening. But yeah, that sounds, sounds great. Sometimes it just emerges that way. It wasn't part of the plan necessarily, but it just sort of played out that way and it's worked out for you, it sounds like. Yeah, I, I think I need to hire you to, to, to write all that down and put it on my, <laughs> my website, my personal page when I, when I finally get that updated. All right. Well, Louis, um, you, you knew this was coming because of our prior conversation. But um, as we wrap up, I've got three remaining questions for you that give you a chance to uh, ponder all of this that you've done in the past and turn it into three final pieces of wisdom for anybody who has stuck with this to this point in the interview. I have got one new segment that I want to introduce and it's three in one here. I've got three questions. You give me your short answer on each one of these three and we'll close with that. All right. Sure. All right. So I want one principle from you, Louis, one principle or value that you believe that most 
people don't. Something that you've learned over time, that's either a principle or a value that you've held true to, uh, or that you has become a truth for you that you don't think most people subscribe to still. Okay, um, a principle then, I think I'm gonna go for a principle instead of a value. And that's something I've been seeing more and more and I've, I've learned how to uh, kind of to talk about this finally over the last couple of days, which is I see people focusing founders focusing on solving a problem for people. It's what they get told everywhere that they should do. Uh, I think you shouldn't focus on a problem. Like most people say, I think you should focus on a real person's pain and work your way forwards from some pain that they have to a problem that you can define and solve for them, something that's going to make them money. But I think you have to understand the pain first. And I think most people who start with the problem end up not being able to charge for it because they don't understand why someone has that problem and why they're willing to pay for it to be to be solved. That's, that's, uh, that's a really unique one. Um, all right, so following up one principle, one behavior or habit that you try to stick to no matter what? Sure, so I can't remember where I heard this from. I can't remember where I read it. I think I got it from a friend who got it from a book or something like that. Um, it's simply every morning I get up and I make my bed first thing and that way I'm more productive. I start the day off pretty well because I'm, I'm most kind of intelligent in the morning and it only goes downhill from there. That would be my, my, my one behavior is always try and make my bed in the morning. It just helps me out. That is a, uh, that's a good one. That's a good one. And that's, uh, that's the lead message from a retired admiral that actually just left, I think, the Trump administration uh, here in the U.S. that actually talked about that very principle of making your, the very, that behavior of making your bed every day. And if you do that, you will have started with a win. No matter how the rest of the day goes, that you can't, maybe you can't even control, at least you've started the day with one first win that you control. That's a good one. All right. And your last one is one person that you most admire, that you take your cues from in life, or that you've learned the most from, whether they know it or not. Sure. So, I mean, there are so many people that go through my head, obviously, parents, uh, co-founders, investors and mentors and everyone. Uh, I think someone who probably doesn't realize actually how much of an impact they've had on me that I'd like to talk about is just Cortland Allen, because we mentioned him already, right. um, the founder of Indie Hackers. He came along at a time with Indie Hackers, with his community, where I was really confused about who I wanted to become and what I wanted to work on. And that gave me this, this really amazing space to, to meet other people and to kind of learn from what he was doing and just to, you know, to find that kind of place where I felt comfortable. Yeah, I, I'm really kind of inspired by everything, the work he's done, as well as just uh, kind of the, you know, the, the values and the, the commitment he puts into it. So, and he's a great guy as well. So that's great. Probably, probably Cortland, I think. Louis, thank you so much for joining me today. Good stuff. Thank you very much. It's been really fun and uh, can't wait to hear this. That was the story of Louis Nichols, the man behind Sales for Founders, five-minute founder, and working behind the scenes for numerous clients like Matt's Flights, Timeline Genius, Post Perk, and in his past life, Jim Hopper, one of the co-founders. All right, if you enjoyed this episode, give us your rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy your podcasts and tell a friend or three, won't you? Recommend us, mention us, pass us along or reach out to me on Twitter at Brandon Hull. All right, a thank you to my co-producer, Preston Lee, founder of Milo and admin of the Milo Mastermind community on Facebook, as well as our incredible assistant, Bilal Labrar, for helping put this episode together and to our friends at the Podglomerate Network. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you next week on Freelance to Founder. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.